I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll break down the latest trade numbers, which suggest that predictions of globalization's demise may have been premature. Plus, we'll explain why some countries want the WTO to waive intellectual property protections for COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. And we'll talk about whether the president can stop the export of vaccines from the United States. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, this is the episode where we chop it up and we talk about how trade has bounced back. Electronics, automotive products have lifted global merchandise trade in Q3 and services are lagging behind. But the third quarter of 2020 saw a partial recovery of world trade and manufactured goods led by electronics, textiles, and automotive products. So what's going on? Why has trade bounced back? Well, it's a confusing time in the world of COVID response. And some of that confusion comes from the realities of Main Street and the realities of macroeconomics often are different. This is one of the cases where that's happened. Now, obviously, we, we talked about it during the summer that in the initial stages, demand for all demand, consumer demand, and most especially demand for imports just cratered and the economy slowed down very dramatically in response to this public health crisis. The key is in a lot of places, they bounce back fairly quickly, although in different ways and different measures. But what I found encouraging about the results that are being reported by the WTO and other organizations is that first, the essential consumer economy, while channel shifted, so less bricks and mortar, more online deliveries, those kinds of things, the absolute consumption levels rebounded to a fairly normal level. Now, I think the good news there is that what we have is a health problem or a health crisis that did not become a financial crisis. I think that's overall good news. The second point I'd make is that in many cases around the world, particularly East Asia and the Pacific, the economies are back to sort of normal levels. There's a range of recovery in the United States. If you take our four largest states, New York and California both have a lot of restrictions on movements and commerce, whereas Texas and Florida are relatively open. So there are some geographic differences, but overall, it says, you know, the demand has returned for most goods. Now, services is still down. Look, international air travel is one of the bigger services categories, uh, international trading services categories. I'm not flying anywhere. Right, exactly. So, and all the travel-related services are also a, a big segment of what we call trade and commercial services. So is education. And there are many fewer foreign students experiencing in-person learning in the United States. That's a lot bigger of a deal than we think it is, right, Scott? Oh, yes. That's a very important services export. We don't think of it as an export because actually it's the foreign students who are present in the United States. Yes, they're coming here. But it's actually it counted as a services export. Sure, because it's our service that we're providing. Right, to a foreign person. So there's some things like that. There are a few surprises in this. One is autos bounce back. If you recall, nobody was visiting a car dealer early on, but the combination of normal repurchase rates, but also people moving out of cities and away from public transportation. And boy, have I got a deal for you. 
Yes, and uh, <laughs> some pretty sharp pricing. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So overall, I think we're seeing a reassuring picture on the trade front, at least an understandable one. So Bill, let me ask this. Have predictions of COVID-19 you know, upending globalization turned out to be wrong? I think it's a little too soon to say, you know, we're coming back in the data that's got decided, which is all good news. We're still below last year. You know, uh, even month to month, we're below last year. And, you know, September was uh, better than July. October will probably be better than September and so on. Uh, but we're still behind. So recovery has got a long way to go, particularly in services, because I think the sectors that you mentioned in particular would travel, but also hospitality meaning hotels and things like that, because if people aren't traveling, they're not staying in hotels. And so that's also way down. I think it's going to be quite a while before that comes back. But I think the predictions of the demise of the world trading system and the end of globalization were clearly premature. You know, trade is on the way back. And the fact is, it's a globally integrated economy and supply chains are going to uh, pick back up and they may be different. We've talked about that. They're going to be more resilient. There'll be more American components in American supply chains. There'll be more regional, but everybody's not coming back here. It's not going to be onshore. Trade's not going to disappear. Yeah, no, it's a shock. It's definitely a shock. Okay. And there was an initial demand shock. There is a supply shock and there's a policy shock and we're working through them all. The place where I think we could use the most workers on policy and sort of getting over the fact that we want to make everything here and returning to the fact that global distribution of production is actually a good thing for resilience and a good thing for maintaining supply. And so uh, there's a lot of work to do, no doubt. But the good news is people are still buying and selling and relying on the kinds of products they did before. So do you think we're confused in this country right now about whether we want to make everything here or not? Well, there's some proposals. But look, I think it's a confusing situation. I think it's really hard to sort through what exactly has happened from a commercial standpoint as a result of the pandemic. And I think it's very difficult. The policy choices haven't yet been thoroughly considered. So I just think I, th I think we're at a moment where there's a lot of work to do. The hook that makes the debate complicated is the link to national security. Because the people that want to make everything here argue that we have to make it here for security reasons. And that's not an entirely silly argument in the sense that there are commodities where there are legitimate national security issues. Give me an example of that. Is that Huawei or? I think telecommunications is, is a good yeah. one. I mean, I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but I think the intelligence folks who've expressed concerns about Chinese telecom equipment, those are well-taken concerns. And we should be worried about that. That doesn't necessarily lead you to only one conclusion. I think the conclusion that leads the Trump administration is we ought to make it all back here, probably at the lower 48 if we can, and particularly in states that I want to vote for me the next time around. How can people vote for him the next time around? He says he won. Well, <laughs> yes, but there's two possibilities. One that, <laughs> believe it or not, he's wrong. There's that. Yep. He leaves the White House either under duress or voluntarily yep. and runs again in 2024. Or, you know, he really has one, and then we have the constitutional amendment to provide for a third term. Oh, there's that. You had to see that coming, you know, if he no. actually ends up in the White House. I'm not. The most likely scenario is he's carried out by the Secret Service on January 20th. Can't, can't somebody convince him that, like, even though 
he's not president anymore. Someone can say, well, you know, you're still really president and the White House is really this place you call Mar-a-Lago and you can just pretend. I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah. (laughs) I think that might have to happen for his own sanity, I guess. I think we've agreed that President Trump is not going away. He he will still be a, a figure of some influence in public life, much as he was before he was president. This is to be sure. I mean, you know, 75 million votes is no joke. He has a lot of influence. Scott and I just did a session this morning with some foreign business people and ended up saying, you know, the discussion of trade policy for the next four years is going to be shaped by the fact that he's not going away. Whether or not he runs again, he's going to do his best to maintain his grip on the Republican Party, which means he's going to be constantly intruding into the public space and trying to dominate media as he has for the last four years, uh, including on trade. But we're off subject. But we're we're not totally off subject because clearly he has shaped the trade policy landscape in a way that we hadn't seen in quite, quite some time. And so, you know, what we're seeing now is, and the question I have is, do the current numbers that we're seeing in trade bouncing back, do they prove the resiliency of globalization and global supply chains? And should we be paying a lot of attention to that. You know, it goes back to the argument that Scott brought up is that, you know, people are pretty stuck on that we need to be making things here, which is President Trump's shaping of trade policy. Well, look, I think the industries that are involved in this, keep in mind, supply chains work at a firm level and they're very hard to aggregate because every firm makes different decisions. It has a different customer base. Its customers are in different places. Its suppliers are in different places. And so there's a lot of granularity that has to be applied here. And I think the work that Bill's doing uh, on the Shoal Chair will be very relevant here. But what you've got to do is decide what it is you really want. Okay, if you want to manage supplies effectively across large geography at best pricing, okay, you're going to have one set of systems. If you want to never run out of product, you've got a stockpiling plan. There are all kinds of alternatives. But the key is because it operates at such a granular level, you got to be very clear about what it is you want from a policy standpoint to avoid just messing the whole thing up. And you have to be clear about what matters and and what doesn't matter, which is where we've had problems before. I mean, having a national security filter on these decisions from the part part of the government makes a lot of sense. But, you know, if you're Peter Navarro, everything is national security. Therefore, everything needs to be made here. And that has a lot of peculiar consequences. I mean, the project we're working on is looking at, at pharmaceuticals and PPE, it's in process, but I think where we end up is that the best model is probably a trusted partner model, that if you try to do everything here, it creates production limitations, you have shortages, you have discontinuities in supply chains. And if you're worried about access, then you look at a trusted partner model. You look at countries that are friends and allies that you can count on, and you develop supply chains that include a network of trusted partners. Now, over time, that produces some changes because you leave countries that are not trusted partners, but that doesn't mean you end up on shore. Well, against the backdrop of this, the headline that really jumped out at me this week was about China, and it was that China's trade surplus widened to a record level in November. It's up to 75.4 billion, a trade surplus that topped the record they previously set in May. And the question I wanted to ask you guys is, what does this mean for us? Well, first, it means China bounced back very quickly. They had a V-shaped recovery, 
and we haven't. Yeah, they bounced back very quickly. And many of the things they were making before the pandemic are in higher demand now, electronic components and computers being one of them. All right. So it's one of the things all of us who didn't used to work from home and now do probably bought computer equipment. And I'm recording this on a microphone that I have only because we no longer use the studio. I bought the microphone and it was made in China, distributed by Amazon uh, and delivered by probably FedEx. But that's an export from China that I bought only because of the pandemic. But there's no question that China has experienced as a whole a much faster recovery than the U.S. in terms of its productive capacity. And what does this tell us, Bill? Should we be worried? You mean more worried than we have been? Yeah. Does this set off alarm bells for you? And if you're the president-elect, Joe Biden, and you're thinking about making your trade policy towards China, what does this make you think? I think it makes it harder than it was going to be anyway. I think the one of the problems is it adds to the narrative that the Chinese are putting out that their system works better than ours. We've not managed COVID very well. Our recovery is not V-shaped. We're going through the alphabet. At last count, it was K-shaped, but it's certainly not V. We've got a lot more people dying than should have died. We're accounting for a third of the world's deaths for COVID right now. And we have a president whose only focus right now is on getting himself winning the election. But what I worry about partly is, you know, the Chinese narrative is, you know, our economy works better. A state-directed model works better. Uh, and an authoritarian political system works better. And there were, are there are certain advantages to an authoritarian system in a case like this. They can order everybody to stay home and arrest them if they don't, and people don't have any rights. We've decided on a different approach, but you know we need to do a better job, I think, of adding some reality to our narrative and, and getting people to understand that the approach of democracies and the approach of rule of law countries actually makes sense. You know, I think more relevant to your question, it also puts a greater burden on Biden to do the run faster part of his policy that we've talked about. Get our economy back up and running, get our high tech companies back up, more money on fundamental research, creation of some national technology priorities and, and taking steps to implement those. It's all in his plan. Uh, we'll see how cooperative the Congress is in trying to get it done. None of this is going to be easy for him, is it? No, it's never easy. The trade part is hard because you got to negotiate with sovereign countries who want to do what's good for them and not what's good for us. And the domestic part is hard because it costs money. You know, more money, on, more spending on R&D means more spending. And, and what we're beginning to see is the Republicans who ignored that for the last four years are suddenly going to become deficit hawks. And everything that Biden wants to spend money on is going to be objectionable because it's going to increase the deficit. You know, the deficit, what, tripled in Trump's administration. They don't seem to be concerned about that. But they're going to be concerned about it in the Biden administration, and they're going to be voting against all this stuff. I'm very worried about that. So the transition is already calling on the bipartisan trade guys for advice. Are you guys going to continue trying to give them as much advice as possible? Like, what's going to be the structure going forward? Is there a trade guy's hotline? Is there a trade guy's bat signal? Like, how does this work? Like, I mean, are they going to call me and be like, how do we get the trade guys? Like, you what's haven't gonna seen the searchlight out top of my house, have you? <laughs> well, look, Bill and I are both patriots. We want to see the country do well. And we're also have done this long enough that we know the solutions tend to be found toward the center. Yep. And so we'll try to help them in any way we can. And Will we keep giving them advice? Of course. You can't shut us up. Uh, the question that is, is will they pay any attention? 
And that's a different question. Our commission on affirming American leadership briefed the senior transition people on what we were doing. And I thought it was a very successful meeting. Thanks to Zoom, we could actually watch them and they were taking notes. So yeah, I think they're paying attention. We'll see where it leads. Well, I'm thinking we need to maybe, you know, develop a trade guy's bat signal or something like that. You know, I know they're going to be listening. Meanwhile, we're in the middle of a serious COVID crisis globally. And COVID's reached everywhere and it's reached the WTO. There's a fight going on in the WTO about vaccines. South Africa and India have called for uh, the World Trade Organization to suspend intellectual property rights related to COVID-19 to ensure that not only the wealthiest countries will be able to access and afford vaccines and medicines and other technologies needed to control the pandemic, but the pharmaceutical industry and many other you know, high-income countries are staunchly opposing the move by the South Africans and the Indians because they're saying it's going to stifle innovation when it's needed most. So that's the fight, essentially, that's going on in the WTO. What do you guys make of it? Oh, well, look, first, there is a piece of good news in all this. The good news is we've gone from identifying the genomic structure of a novel pathogen to an effective vaccine in less than 12 months. That is staggering in terms of the achievement of medical science. Now, that's the good news. And so the challenge is you've got to stand up vaccine production for a world that's really in need of this vaccine. And I confidence in the same industry that produced the miracle of a vaccine in less than 12 months can scale up and do great things in terms of delivering it. Now, it turns out that our friends in South Africa and India and elsewhere have never had an event happen where there wasn't a good reason to suspend intellectual property protection. This is a playbook that at least I've seen run a dozen or so times, and it fits the event. But I think the key issue here is not the battle, whatever it is in Geneva, as much as it is sorting through the facts. In other words, what is it that you need, you South Africa, you India, you the developing economies writ large, what is it you need to treat the disease and how much of that is patent protected? Almost none, okay? The one that is the antiviral from Gilead is they have a licensing arrangement that is in place for their other antiretrovirals. So you gotta find out what the facts are, what it is you actually need. And for me, I think the project goes not towards suspending IP protection, but scaling up vaccine production and distribution, which doesn't really rely on IP. It isn't part of the TRIPS agreement, uh, at least in an important way. So I think you got to get down to brass tacks on this. you got to figure out, okay, what is it that you're short of? What is it that you don't have to treat uh, the disease or to vaccinate? And let's work on those. Yeah, I think Scott is right. This is not a new debate. This debate's been going on for a long time. And it's hard not to be cynical about it because the countries that are leading this particular fight, South Africa and India, are exactly what Scott said. They're the countries that have been trying to break uh, intellectual property restrictions for years. You know, they use a variety of excuses depending upon the, the year and the issue, but it's the same thing. They don't want to have to deal with rule of law issues. They don't want to have to deal with messy little things like patents and trademarks. I've never had much sympathy for that point of view. I have a lot more sympathy for the people that have to spend all the money that are developing these products. And Scott's right. In, in a sense, this is the wrong way to tackle the problem. The problem is ramping up production quickly enough to get the vaccine available to everybody. We should be focused on production. Who owns the IP rights is not 
I don't think, determinative of the production process. So that's where we need to be spending our time and energy. And, and I don't think, you know, as an aside point, it, it doesn't look in the WTO like this is a, going to be a successful effort. I think there's probably more countries objecting to what they want to do than are supporting what they want to do. It's not just the United States. It's the United States, it's the EU, it's most developed countries that think this is a bad idea. Well, back on our shores, following a damning report Monday that the Trump administration turned down an opportunity to double its orders of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, President Trump signed an executive order on Tuesday, December 8th, telling pharmaceutical companies to prioritize Americans and threatening to put the U.S. at the front of the line through the Defense Production Act when it comes to vaccines, although it's unclear whether this order is actually effective or not. So what happened here, guys? Well, I think it's partly a butt-covering exercise because they messed up last summer when they passed on buying additional vaccines. Trump is actually, like most presidents, is constitutionally incapable of saying I made a mistake. And so this is an effort to demonstrate that we didn't make a mistake because we're going to do something else. Yeah, and the mistake is, it isn't like the mistake's unforgivable. I mean, the reason they didn't buy all the Pfizer's is that they were trying to spread out, buy a bunch of different vaccines and to make sure that if one was better than the other, right? I mean, they didn't want to put all their eggs in one basket. Yeah, which at the time I think was a logical thing to do. Sure. And, and may still be the logical thing to do. Hindsight is twenty twenty, And it's easy to say, well, if you'd done this differently back then, but it does look a little strange. Uh, right now, when the, the volume of production that's coming out appears to be significantly less than, than, than our needs. On the other hand, two weeks from now, this conversation may be very different when you've got additional vaccines approved and coming online. You know, three months from now, this may very well be a non-story. It does have sort of broader policy implications. It kind of reminds me of when Truman uh, tried to nationalize the steel industry in 1952, as I recall. And that was uh, also, a, I think, a Defense Production Act play. The economic issues were different, but the Supreme Court slapped him down. I don't know what would happen in this case. I mean, the DPA does give the president authority to direct production in, to certain entities in certain places. So maybe you'll get away with it. I mean, the reality is that he'll be out of office before they can implement it anyway. So, Well, look, here's a little more benign interpretation of this. And I'll tie it to something that happened very early in the PPE crisis, the big demand shock early on, not enough N95 masks. This is one where there were a lot of threats made by the president himself and others in the administration toward the 3M company, uh, who got caught where their distributors, independent distributors, had control over the supply of masks, not the producer itself, 3M. And lots of hot language back and forth as a way to start negotiations. And I think that's what this is. I think our president, the real estate developer, who is looking for a, a bit of leverage to try to negotiate his way to a better outcome on vaccine delivery in the United States. And this is the opening bluster that provides some room for the half a loaf that will certainly come. Yeah, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. I mean, it's frustrating. This is a global problem. You know, everybody's sick everywhere. And the Trump proposal is, let's keep all the stuff for ourselves. I mean, this is classic America first, Trump, Peter Navarro. You know, who cares about the rest of the world? We're just going to keep everything. Well, it's definitely on brand for this team. Yeah, and I think it's a profoundly dangerous way to look at the problem. It, it really is a global problem. It's not a U.S. problem. And if we hoard, uh, which is really what he's saying, other people are going to do the same thing. 
And then you have the problem of the Indians and the South Africans uh, and a lot of other countries getting shortchanged. Well, Trey, guys, it's been great chopping it up with you on this today. All I can say is, until next time, same trade time, same trade channel. Thank you. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.